If you would, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. This evening, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks this evening that you have called us and welcomed us into your presence, and we thank you, Father, that you have now spoken thus by your word. And we pray, Father, this evening that as we study this doxology, O Lord, that our hearts would be changed from perhaps sleepy and tired and weary and wounded uh, to those who, that are awoken to praise you and to, 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 uh, to offer our own doxologies uh, as a result of this particular hour. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work within us uh, even now, in Christ's name, amen. Isn't it true that some of the most successful people are also some of the most miserable. And we see this in the news all the time, we see this all over the place, is that the people who have success and money and everything that you could ever imagine uh, wind up to actually be pretty miserable people. One of the singer or songwriters that I listened to, I've listened to him for several years now, he said this in, in kind of the middle of one of his albums. He said, my most considered, like success moment, successful moment of my life was the worst. The most depressed I've ever been, literally feeling like I'd probably be happier if I was dead. I got a number one on the billboard. My song is massive right now. Like, I may never have a song this big again. My tour, I think every date sold out except one date. And so I literally had everything that I'd always dreamed of happening. And I felt... I didn't feel happy at all. And so I think what happened was I spiraled really bad because I was like, I'm here, and if this is it, there's gotta be more for me. Because if this is it, it's not gonna work. It's true. Success does not necessarily equal joy and happiness. I mean, that's not only true for unbelievers, but it's true for Christians too. I mean, that guy actually professes to be a, a Christian. I mean, and even, right, we could even say that, that some of our family or perhaps even some of us know that we can spiral into misery pretty easily. Even with all, all the, I mean, think, think about everything that we've, that we've covered thus far in Ephesians, even with all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, there are times when, when misery either seems to be present or, or not very far away at all. And so the question that I wanna ask as we approach this particular doxology tonight is really kind of the inverse of what it's doing. What makes a miserable Christian? Right, what makes a miserable Christian? I mean, we look at the text and you can't help but know that, that Paul is not miserable. 
right? He writes one of the most beautiful and one of the most rich doxologies in the entire Bible. I mean, he's not even close to being miserable. If he, if he is, he doesn't, he doesn't communicate it at all. So the question is then, okay, what does he have that I may not, right? What, what, is, what does the apostle have that I may not? And I think this text in particular illuminates a few of the factors that, that make a miserable Christian, but it also provides the kind of the helpful corrections that we need in order to avoid it. And I think the first thing that we're confronted with is that, is that we become miserable Christians when we limit God's abilities by our imaginations. Right, here's, here's the tendency in the Christian life, right? We, we often frame the ability, right, what God has the power to do, we often frame God's ability in reference to ourselves instead of in reference to who he has revealed himself to be, right? We limit God's ability to do by the things that we may ask him to do or what we can conceive of him doing, right? In other words, if we don't ask him to do it, then, then we don't think that he's able to do it. Or if we can't conceive of him doing it, if, if we haven't imagined him doing it, then, then he's not able to do it. In other words, we often define God's ability, we often define God's ability rather than letting God define God's ability, right? It's an, it's an exercise in me defining who God is rather than letting him define who he is. And if you think about it, I mean, that's a pretty spiritual life-killing idea. Like, I mean, that would absolutely make a miserable Christian, Right, that the fact that, that, that God can only do the things that I can imagine him doing or God can only do the things that, that, that I can pray that he would do, that I could ask that he would do. I mean, that's, right, surely God is bigger than that and we know theologically that he is, but, but sometimes we assume that he's not. Right? And this is wrong, right? This is a theological error that, that leads us into misery when we go about the business of defining who God is and what he can do. And it absolutely leads to misery, but, but it's actually what Paul refutes in his doxology. I mean, what, what does the text actually say? Does it say that God is able to do only what we can ask or think? Absolutely not. Right, the text says that, that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Right, instead of limiting God's ability by what we could ask or what we could imagine, Paul is saying that, that God's ability is far greater than what we could ask or think. I mean, you, like, to, to convince us that this is a problem, let me just kind of remind you of an exercise. Right, have you ever asked a four-year-old, what can God do? I'd put money on the table, not I think betting's a sin, but, but don't bet, but I'd put money on the table that every four-year-old in the room is gonna have ideas that are bigger than the ones that I come up with immediately, 
Right? You go ask a child, you go ask a, a, a little boy or a little girl, you know, what, what's the biggest, most powerful thing that you think God could do? And what are they going to say? I mean, they're going to say that, that God can move mountains. They're going to say that God can walk on water. They're going to say that God can float in the air. They're going to say that God can be bigger than the sky. They're going to say all of these things about what God can do and what he is like. And every one of them, I bet, are going to be better than our first answer or our second or third or fourth. Right, they have, their imaginations conceive of God as just being so big. And the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying that, that no, God is, is, he's far more abundantly bigger than that. I mean, you, you, you take your, your wildest imaginations of what God can do and what he's able to do and what he has power to do and that's not even your baseline. Right? God can do way more than that. Your most imaginative thoughts of what God can do don't even reach the minimum of what God can actually do. Right? To say that again, your most imaginative thoughts of what God can do don't even reach the minimum of what God can actually do. And we run into this theological error all the time. I mean, probably on a daily basis, right? We have a problem that comes up. Okay, I've had problems before. Let me think through the solutions. All right, I come up with three solutions on the table of how to fix my current problem. But then, but then we realize, you know, I don't really like any of those solutions. Or maybe all of those solutions are, are out of reach and impossible for me to enact, and so we're faced with either I don't like them or, or I can't do any of them. And, and then it just sends us into this kind of spiral of misery and of panic and of dark clouds of, of deep depression. And all the while, we forget that God is not limited by any of the options that I have conceived thus far. Right? He's able to, to circumvent the options that I've thought of and perhaps even bring about another solution that I've, that I've never even crossed my mind. Or maybe he's able to even to, to change my own heart so that I do like one of the options to solve my problem. Or maybe, maybe it's that he's gonna sustain me through the, the options that I don't like and he's gonna get me through that season of suffering that way. But, but God is able to do far more abundantly than anything that I could ask or think. But sometimes our minds, our theology gets so closed in by, by just what goes on in our heads. The scriptures give us one of the, one of the great illustrations for this particular point. In Mark chapter six, verses 45 to 42, this is where Jesus, um, uh, he's just fed the 5,000 and he immediately, Mark says, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And you know the story, right? The disciples are having a hard time getting across the lake and Jesus walks out and gets in the boat and, um, and they sail across to the other side. But the, the, what's implied in the story is, is that Jesus is gonna meet the disciples on the other side of the lake, and I bet if you would have asked any one of the disciples, okay, how is Jesus gonna meet you on the other side of the lake? What would they have said? Well, well maybe he's gonna ride in another boat or maybe he's gonna walk. 
there are two options on the table that any one of them would have said, he's gonna meet us over there and he's, he, there, there's only two ways to do that. He's either gonna ride in another boat or he's gonna walk to the other side around the lake. How many disciples would have said, no, he's gonna walk on the water to the middle of the sea while we're struggling to make it across and join us in the boat after Peter almost sinks and then get in the boat with us and uh, then us go to the other side. Nobody would have said that. No one's saying that. Why is no one saying that? Because, because God is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. Right? We're learned, we, we learned that God is not limited by our finitude, that the infinite God is not limited by our finitude that God's abilities are not confined or restricted or limited or restrained or bound by what we may think that he could do. In fact, what we think he can do is barely even scratching the surface. I mean, the abilities of the creator are not hindered by the conceptions of the creation. Right? God's abilities as the creator are not hindered by the conceptions of the creature. So what, what, does, that, what does that mean for us? What, what is that, you know, what's, that's the problem, okay, what's the solution? Well, the solution is, is to, to, to not limit God by our limitations, right? When we pray, to be, to be open to the fact that God is more than likely going to do things differently and better than anything that I could pray or think that he could do, right? F.F. F. Bruce says that, that God's capacity for giving far exceeds our capacity to ask or even imagine. And so we pray, and we ask for specific things and we ask God to fix problems in specific ways but, but, but also Christian, be aware of the fact that, that, that it is almost certainly a reality that he will do things differently and ultimately better than anything that you could think or ask that he would do. And so the, how do we not become miserable Christians? Well, we have an open-mindedness when it comes to God's abilities. And we have expectations for him to do way better and way more than we could ask or think. Right? We pray and we rest and we trust and we praise the Lord God Almighty that he's bigger and more able and more capable than whatever, whatever obstacle may be in front of us. Right? We, we, we know and we trust that God is gonna take care of us, but he's gonna do it his way. Right? He will take care of us. There's no need for the misery. We, we, what are we called to do? We're called to trust in the God who is bigger and better than we can ask or think. So one of the first things that makes a miserable Christian is limiting God's abilities by our imaginations, Right? but so will limiting his power to work on us and to work in us, right? Verse 20, right? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, and then there's that little clause. According to the power at work 
where? Within us. I mean, have you ever really given that, that part of verse 20 much thought before? Right, the first thing that we need in order to not become miserable Christians is to have a right understanding of God's omnipotence, right? A, a right understanding of God's power, his ability. We need to understand and teach our minds and hearts that, it's, that, that God's abilities are way bigger and way grander and way huger than we can ever imagine. But the second thing that we need to understand is that that same power is at work Within us, I mean, it's, it's the same word, it's the same, just in a different form. God's power, God's ability, same, same Greek word, just in a different form. God's power is at work within us. I mean, it's, it's inconceivable to think that something so big and so grand and so huge could actually come and, and be at work in me. I mean, it's a silly illustration, but like, I mean, seven years ago or eight years ago when I was living in a little town Vidae or actually 30 minutes away, like, we're gonna have Chick-fil-A come to Vidae? Or like, we're gonna, and then two years later, Starbucks is coming to Vidae? Or, or like, every time we come to the Lord's table, like, I'm, the Lord Jesus is coming to meet with me and to eat with me? Or, God's omnipotent power is at work within, within me? And the temptation is to say, oh yes, well that's certainly true for the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's, he's kind of really important, right? I mean, he's this, you know, he's, he's this guy that, that got to see Jesus and Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and actually gave him a specific call and specific instructions, like super big deal. I mean, he wrote like half the New Testament. Of course, of course the omnipotent power of God is at work in Paul. Like, of course he is. But there's a, there's a key word there. It, it, it's, it's the plural, according to the power at work within just Paul, within me. No, it's within us. Right, it's not, Paul's not just saying God's omnipotent power is at work within me. Sorry, Ephesians, he's not at work in you. No, it's, it's us, it's me and you and, and not only Ephesian church but the, the church throughout the ages. I mean, that, if, if we really think about it, that, that should surprise us. Like we read it, we know what all of those words mean in that sentence but it's just almost theologically inconceivable that, that God's power would be at work within us. And if we, we're honest, I mean, we probably wouldn't say it out loud, but we probably really have a hard time believing it. I mean, do you know how bad I sinned last week? And that's what we would say. And God's power is at work in me? I did that? And I think the reason why it's honestly so inconceivable that God's power would be at work in his people, his omnipotent power would be at work in his people. It's probably because of a deeper problem. And I think that deeper problem is, is that we don't value ourselves as highly as God values us in Christ. Paul has been throwing around this phrase and not just throwing it around, but using it purposefully with intention this phrase, in Christ, throughout the letter to the, and, and he's illustrated all of the blessings that are ours in Christ, how God loves his people and he thinks of us in Christ as his inheritance. He loves us so much that, that, that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, 
He raised us to life. He loved, he loved us Gentiles, yucky sinners so much that he brought us in by the blood of Jesus' sacrifice. God really does value us highly. The cross is absolutely uh, the, the, the proof of that. And because we don't value ourselves as highly as God does in Christ, we also don't have the same goals and intentions for the Christian life. You see, it's a, it's a kind of a domino effect. Right, I don't really believe that, that, that God, God's power could be at work in me, which, is really, which really exposes that I don't think of myself like God thinks of me, which really then exposes a deeper problem. Well, then I don't really have the same intentions that he does for me. Like if, 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 if I were to give you a sheet of paper and tell you to write down your spiritual goals until the day that you die, probably most of us would frame them in the negative. Right? It, it would probably mostly look like this. It's like, I don't wanna kill anyone. I have children. I don't want to kill anyone. Like, I don't want to get caught in any grievous public sin. Right? I don't want to commit any sins that hurt a whole bunch of people. I don't want to go to jail. Like, that's, those are some goals that we would probably have for the Christian life. And then, but you see, they're, they're all framed in the negative while God frames his intentions for us in the positive. And they're way bigger than that. God's ultimate goal for us is stated in the positive in Romans 8, 29. I'm gonna transform you into the image of Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Not become bad sinners, to be what? Mostly good people, to be what? Like not go to jail, to be, you know. No, to be conformed to the image of his son. Like that's the intention that God has for us, for for, for us to become conformed to the image of his son and he's predestined it so that it would happen. And what is it, what what, what actually accomplishes that? Well, it's this, right? It's the omnipotent power of God at work in us that accomplishes that very thing. I mean, you you ask the, the average Christian, okay, we all know that God's omnipotent, But tell me some places where his omnipotence is at work and we're gonna say, you know, it was at work at creation. You know, it's at at work in his providence. You know, it was at work in the resurrection. It was at work doing all those miracles in the Bible, like making axes float and all that sort of stuff. Like that's, uh, God's omnipotent power was at work. But, But probably one of the last things that we would say is that God's omnipotent power is at work in me sanctifying me. But that's, that's what Paul's saying. Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work in us. That's where God's power is active. I mean, when we become miserable Christians, when we limit God's assessment of us by our assessment of ourselves, which has a trickle-down effect not only into just our own self-conception and our own identity, but also in our sanctification goals. God has stated his openly and plainly, and he absolutely will accomplish them. And so that's encouraging to us, right? That, That God's powers at work in us, and so when our sanctification does get hard, and we did big, big mess up last week. Right, what do we do? Do we give up? 
No, we strive ahead knowing God's power is at work in his people, knowing that we will be made into a perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be on the other side of the glory. It may be on the other side of glory, but God's not gonna wait until then to do all his work. Right? God doesn't predestinate things that don't actually come to be. So Christian, knowing that God's power is at work and you remain faithful Right? The, the, the devil's whisperings are gonna tell you all sorts of trash, right? All you are is a sinner and that's all you'll ever be. All you are is a drunkard and that's all you'll ever be. All you are is an adulterer and that's all you'll ever be. And plug in the blank, liar, cheater, stealer, failure, whatever you wanna plug in, that's all you are and that's all you'll ever be. And God is saying, absolutely not. My power is at work in you, within you. Don't, don't give in to that sort of miserable outlook of the Christian life that this is what I am and this is all I'm gonna ever be. That's miserable. God has way, way bigger goals than that. And so we become miserable Christians when we limit God's abilities by our imagination and we become miserable Christians when we limit God's assessment of us by our own assessment of ourselves but we also become miserable Christians when we limit our praise by our circumstances. Life can get messy. I know it, right? You know it, everybody knows it. Life can get messy. But as hard as it is to believe, especially in tough seasons, our lives are not only for messiness. And our lives are, are, are more than just fodder for messiness. They're, they're actually, we're actually designed for something. We're designed to praise the Lord God Almighty. And, and we, we actually see this kind of, this, this big idea in, in exhibited in the, the apostle himself, right? You know, he's, he's modeled for us what, good theology is, right? A theology of God's abilities and a, th- a theology of God's goals for sanctification. And now he models for us a, 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 a model of, of good praise. And remember like, okay, so Paul's writing this doxology and where is he at when he's writing this doxology? Well, if you, if you turn over the page back to 3.1, you know that Paul's in prison, Right, he's bound by chains. You look at chapter four, verse one. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. He's in jail, man. He's in jail and he's writing this doxology. Right, he knows his life is on a time clock and yet he offers one of the most beautiful doxologies of the entire New Testament, perhaps even the, the, the whole Bible. Right, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Paul's praise, not limited by his circumstances. And, and neither is his outlook for the church's praise either. So, so you actually look at what Paul's saying, right? Of course, okay, we can believe that the Son of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord, he is going to offer praise and glory to the Father throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. 
That one's conceivable. But the church is set right alongside Jesus as those who will offer praise and glory throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Right? Paul's outlook for the church is that they will always be praising and glorifying God Almighty. Now that obviously doesn't mean that we can't ever weep. I mean, we can weep. We should weep. We can and there are seasons when we can and, and should be genuinely sad but, but the, the thing is is that we can praise God in the midst of those circumstances that we can praise God in the midst of our, circum, of our suffering. The Old Testament, especially the Psalms are, are full of lament, they're full of grieving to the point of eating tears, to the point of nausea, brokenheartedness, crushed in spirit, afflictedness. Yet, what do we find in the midst of those Psalms? We find praise is the thread that's kind of weaving them together and keeping them tidy. And you can bet that, that misery is not far behind for the one who has a mutually exclusive view of suffering and praise. Right, if your outlook on the Christian life is I can either be suffering or I can either be praying, that's a recipe for misery. Right, I mean, we multitask in every other area of our lives. Right, we, we, we drive and we talk on the phone. Right? We, we eat while we drive. We don't drink while we drive. We listen to music while we work. We, you know, we, we eat while we grieve. I mean, that's what we do in the South. Like some, if a family member dies, what do we do? We wanna bring you food so that you can both eat and grieve at the same time. Right? We, are, we are a people who multitask. But sometimes it's so hard for us to couple suffering with praise. While the the Bible, even the apostle here, models both for us at the same time. I mean, the psalmist do it, Paul does it here. And Paul, really, the expectation is for the church to do it throughout the end of the age. And really, to not do it is, is just a spiritual death sentence. Because the reality is, is that even while we're suffering, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right back there when I was on the hilltop and I, was, I could easily say that God is able to do far more abundantly than I could ever ask or think. He was that. But he's also that today when I, when I, can't, I can't dry my eyes because the tears are flowing so, so quickly. They're so abundant. Right? Every single day God is able to do far more abundantly than I could ever ask or think. And every single day, God is as committed to my being transformed into the image of his son as he ever was. And the reality is, is that if the Lord Jesus was perfected through suffering, as Hebrews tells it, it was, then I absolutely will be perfected through suffering. And in those seasons of suffering, what am I called to do? I'm called to, yes, cry tears of lament but to praise the name of the Lord God Almighty. And when I don't, right, when I, when I do have a mutually exclusive view of those two things, I, it's a recipe to become miserable. 
the, the kind of the, the, the point that I want to make from this passage is that, that we become miserable Christians when we become consumed with ourselves instead of consumed with God. And the inverse of that is also true. We become joyful Christians when we are consumed with God instead of consumed with ourselves. And if, 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 if we want to not be miserable, and I don't think anybody in here wants to be miserable, right, we, we have to do what Paul's doing, and he's not navel-gazing. Right, he has his eyes set firmly on the glory of God the Father. Right, if we want to be joyful, we have to set our gaze on Christ our Lord. Right, there is nowhere to look. There is nowhere else to look to find joy in the Christian life. As someone else has said it before, it's the idea of taking 10 looks at your Savior for every one look at your sin. It's the idea that, that, that Paul gives us in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and we all with unveiled face beholding what? Ourselves? Right? Beholding our circumstances? No, beholding the glory of the Lord. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so, brother and sister, if, if you're going to be consumed with something, consume yourself with the Lord God Almighty, not yourself. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these kind and gentle reminders as we see in the apostle that his theology is perfect. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, passed down to us through the ages, his theology is perfect. His praise is wonderful. And Father, we pray that you would transform us that we might be able to do the same. We pray these things and we know that, we are pow- that you are powerful enough to do it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.